while you are visiting the heart of the motherlode, make sure to make an appointment at Juniper Moon Tattoo and take home a souvenir that will last you forever. Like a custom tattoo, permanent lip blush, or fresh microbladed brow. Juniper Moon Tattoo is a female-owned professional tattoo shop located in downtown Twainheart. It's inclusive, licensed, friendly, and resting in our beautiful mountains. This shop is super clean with tons to look at. It is a welcoming and relaxing feel, and you will have such a great experience, you just might not want to leave. Juniper Moon Tattoo specializes in custom tattooing and premium permanent makeup services. Make an appointment with the shop owner, Brooke, or one of the talented artists that are creating magic at Juniper Moon by visiting junipermoontattoo.com or calling the shop at 209-432-8945. Located at 22997 Joaquin Gully Road, Suite G in Twainheart, California. Hi, this is Morgan from the LGBTQ Rural Resource Center serving Tuolumne and Calaveras counties. I would like to personally invite all of you rainbow listeners who are out in the mountains to visit us at lgbtqrural.org. There you could learn about programs, advocacy, education, resources, and upcoming events. We are also excited to announce that we will soon have a physical location. We look forward to sharing our safe space with you. LGBTQRural.org Visit Columbia Mercantile 1855 for that good old hometown shopping experience. The Columbia Mercantile 1855 is an 1850s-inspired, full-service market and grocer, offering quality staples and specialties, including local meats and poultry, and local produce. You never know what treasures you'll find. From fresh-baked San Francisco sourdough to bottles of sarsaparilla, they have beer and wine, pharmaceutical needs, local art, and even offerings for musicians. Find artisan cheeses, honeys, cookies, olive oils, and specialty snacks. And if you are looking for choices for healthier lifestyles, Teresa also carries organic, gluten-free, and vegan options. It's a fabulous store with wonderful products and a caring shop owner. EBT accepted. Open daily from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. at 11245 Jackson Street in Columbia State Historic Park. What was it like for the women in California during the 1850s? What hardships did they face? And what victories were they able to realize? Who were the first women who came to California and who was already here? Explore the lives of brilliant people who made their own way in a time where women were not welcome to do so. 
Hear the stories that contributed to the shaping of the future of California and the United States in the paperback Queens of the Minds, available on Amazon. You can also support Queens of the Minds on Patreon. From the early 19th century to the early 20th century, minstrelsy was a popular form of American theater. Minstrel shows were based on the comic enactment of racial stereotypes. This tradition hit its peak between 1850 and 1870. The earliest shows were staged by white male traveling musicians mimicking the singing and dancing of slaves with their faces painted black. Minstrel troops did not even welcome actual black performers until after the Civil War. And then, these minstrel shows were the only theatrical medium in which gifted black performers of the period could support themselves. By the 20th century, women were also appearing in the minstrel shows. On June 10th of 1893, a woman named Susan had her 13th child, a daughter, She named her Hattie. On the account of the family being so poor, Hattie was malnourished, weighing only three and a half pounds at birth. Although the family often went hungry, they were tight-knit and creative. Today, we talk about the incredible life of Hattie McDaniel. She was the first African-American to win an Oscar, but she was so much more than that. Season three features inspiring, gallant, even audacious stories of real 19th century women from the Wild West. Stories that contain adult content, including violence, which may be disturbing to some listeners or secondhand listeners, so discretion is advised. I'm Andrea Anderson, and this is Queens of the Minds, Season 3. Henry McDaniel was a Baptist minister who also performed in minstrel shows. His wife, Susan, was a gospel singer. Both Henry and Susan had been born into the horrors of slavery in the mid-Atlantic South. The McDaniels were living in Wichita, Kansas in the early 1890s. The Civil War haunted the family. After Henry joined the Tennessee 12th U.S. Colored Infantry Regiment, he fought for the Union at the brutal Battle of Nashville in 1864. Henry's jaw was shattered during battle, leaving an infected, oozing, open wound inside his mouth. Henry received little to no medical treatment And after the war, he valiantly worked hard labor jobs despite his constant pain. The family moved to Denver when Hattie was eight years old. She grew up attending integrated schools and singing in the church choir. She knew she could sing and dance. Sometimes Hattie was doing it so much that Susan would give her a nickel to stop, despite their destitution. The government made it nearly impossible for Henry to receive the pension and disability payments he deserved. 
Patty used the skills she learned in school to help her father fill out the government's paperwork. In 1908, Henry was informed that his pension could not be increased. Since there was no official proof that he had reached the age of 70, and of course it was impossible for Henry to furnish a record of his birth, he was a slave. The next year, Hattie, now 16 years old, dropped out of school and began performing full-time. With her sister Etta, billed as the McDaniel Sisters Company, they ran an all-female minstrel show. Despite the constant hardship and discrimination she faced, Hattie overcame and became a trailblazer in entertainment in the Denver area. By 26, Hattie was signed with a big vaudeville company, and she toured with them for five years. In the 1920s, Hattie refashioned herself into a sly, subversive blues singer. She was known as the old pet machine and the sepia Sophie Tucker. Hattie was the first black woman to sing on the radio in the United States after an invitation to perform on Denver's KOA radio with songs like Boohoo Blues and The Dentist Chair Blues. Hattie McDaniel walked the line between writing, recording, and acting in the black vaudeville circuit and taking jobs as a domestic worker or a cook to get by. When the stock market crashed in 1921, Hattie was touring as part of the chorus in Florence Ziegfeld's showboat. Ziegfeld was forced to let most of his performers go, leaving Hattie in Milwaukee working as a restroom attendant at Sam Pick's Club at the Suburban Inn. There was one evening at Sam Pick's Club that changed everything for Hattie. That night, all of the singers had left before the club closed and Hattie stepped in. Her rendition of St. Louis Blues brought the house down and she was hired on the spot. For the next two years, she headlined at the inn until it was forced to close during the Great Depression. Hattie's siblings, Sam and Etta, moved to Los Angeles. They had begun earning small roles in movies and encouraged her to join them. With $20 in her purse, she hopped on the next bus and headed for Hollywood. And at 39 years old, she received her first role in a film. She played a maid. There would be a series of roles ahead playing servants. This was typical for a black female in the pictures at the time. She was a maid in the successful Mae West film, I'm No Angel, and in Shirley Temple's The Little Colonel, and George Ford's Judge Priest, and even more house servant roles followed. The film Gone with the Wind had the most talked about casting in Hollywood. The search was on to find the perfect Scarlett O'Hara and her mammy. Eleanor Roosevelt herself wrote to the producer, David O. Selznick, and asked that her own maid be given the role of mammy. Sam McDaniel's good friend, Bing Crosby, suggested to Selznick that they use that woman who played Queenie in the recent film version of Showboat. I don't know her name, but she'd be a perfect choice. He knew her name. Hattie McDaniel. Hattie felt like she didn't stand a chance based on her reputation as a comedic actress, but the role was given to her. 
tucked away in Truckee in the Sierra Nevada mountains lies a gold mine, and I'm talking about Valhalla Vintage. Valhalla Vintage is a unique vintage shop offering quality goods. Goods that were made in the USA. Goods that were made to last. They are open Fridays and Saturdays from 10 to 4. Let their knowledgeable staff show you how to wear these classic pieces every day of the week. If you're on your way to Tahoe and Reno, be sure to stop in Truckee and check out Valhalla Vintage. Follow on Instagram at Valhalla Vintage Company or find them online at ValhallaVintageCO.com. That's V-A-L-H-A-L-L-A VintageCO.com. Valhalla Vintage is female-owned. Let the shop owner Emily be your new vintage guru. Over 2.5 million acres burned in California in 2021, but the future of wildfire protection is clear. Let Firebat help protect your home and property with its award-winning, non-toxic, United States Forest Service approved technology. Fireback is your home hardening experts against wildfire and they can help protect your home by spraying a clear fire retardant around critical areas of your property and it lasts all summer long. Fireback can replace your eaves, foundation, gable and vents with an ember proof venting system. Fire danger is a real threat for home and business owners in California. And Fireback Wildfire Defense Services can protect your outside umbrellas, patio furniture, wood decks, and wood siding from rogue embers escaped from nearby fires. Schedule a consultation by calling 209-288-2376 or go to firebackca.com. That's firebackca.com. There you can sign up for a free estimate and home evaluation. If there's a chance of taking fire, your best defense is to fire back. Proudly serving Tuolumne County and surrounding areas. Go ahead and follow Fireback on Facebook and Instagram. The Black Newspaper, Pittsburgh Courier, predicted that Gone with the Wind would be even more racist than the movie The Birth of a Nation. Selznick Studios officials responded, stating that a certain racial slur had been deleted from the movie script and agreed to exclude all the book's references to the Ku Klux Klan. Yet, all of the black actors and actresses in the film were not invited to the Gone with the Wind premiere held in racially segregated Atlanta on December 15, 1939. Nor did their photographs appear in the program. Clark Gable boycotted the event when he heard the news, but Hattie urged Gable to go. Outside of the premiere, a choir of African-American children, including 10-year-old Martin Luther King Jr., sang for the estimated 300,000 fans that lined the street to see the parade of movie stars. At the end of the nearly four-hour movie, the voice of William Hartsfield, mayor of Atlanta, 
shook as he spoke. He asked the audience to applaud the black members of the cast, none of whom were present. Gone with the Wind author Margaret Mitchell wrote to Hattie and said, I wish you could have heard the applause. That year at the Oscars, Hattie McDaniel was nominated for Best Supporting Actress, the first black person to ever be nominated. She was also the first black person ever allowed to attend the awards dinner after the organizers agreed to seat her at the very back table on February 29th, 1940. Actress Faye Bainter took to the stage to announce the award for Best Supporting Actress and the spectators stifled their yawns and leaned forward expectantly, followed by a gasp when Ms. Bainter called for Hattie McDaniel to receive the award. There was silence for several moments, and then the tumult got underway. The crowd was tendering an ovation never paralleled in Academy history. Hattie made her way past the larger tables filled with the white members of the industry and found her way to the podium. With gardenias in her hair, she stood in front of a room filled with her white peers at the Coconut Grove. She was gracious. She showed no bitterness and mentioned no politics. Instead, she cried and stated, I sincerely hope that I shall always be a credit to my race and the motion picture industry. My heart is too full to tell you how I feel. But the historic Oscar win was a double-edged sword. It did not open doors to better movie roles for herself or other black actors, as she had hoped. She said, Instead of winning wider success, it was as if I did something wrong. Time after time, Hattie often faced criticism from the black community for accepting roles as a servant. Black intellectuals had long rallied against the demeaning, stereotypical roles black actors played. Walter White, leader of the NAACP, had beef with McDaniel after he himself called on black actors to stop mugging and playing the clown for the camera. The two were locked into an increasingly dramatic personal feud. The influential Earl Morris in the Pittsburgh Courier wrote, we feel proud that Hattie McDaniel won the coveted role of Mammy. It means about $2,000 for Miss McDaniel in individual advancement and nothing in racial advancement. Hattie responded publicly by saying, Why should I complain about being paid $700 to play a maid? If I didn't, I'd be making $7 a week to be a maid. Many of the most prominent figures of Black Los Angeles, doctors, entrepreneurs, oil barons, musicians, and film actors, including Hattie McDaniel, began buying homes in the neighborhood Sugar Hill in West Adams, Los Angeles in the 40s. Sugar Hill was named after a wealthy black section in Harlem. The area featured beautiful old colonial mansions and Victoria homes. Always immaculately dressed, with her beloved Dalmatians nearby, McDaniel was a legendary hostess. At her parties, people like Duke Ellington and Ethel Waters would perform for her close friends Clark Gable, Cab Calloway, Luell Parsons, 
Paul Robeson, Bing Crosby, Louise Beavers, breaking the color lines of segregated Hollywood. Some of the white neighbors decided to dig out documentation that established that um, this area has a restricted covenant that limits ownership to white owners only. Sorry. Hattie decided to test the issue in court before Judge Thurman Clark in December of 1945. McDaniel was represented by a civil rights attorney, Lauren Miller, who was also editor and publisher of the California Eagle. The judge decided to adjourn court until the next day so he could go visit the neighborhood himself. The following morning, he threw the case out. He said, It's time that people of color are accorded to the full rights guaranteed to them under the 14th Amendment to the federal constitution without reservations or evasions. The Sugar Hill case in California paved the way for a 1948 Supreme Court case, Shelley versus Kramer, which would ultimately deem racially restrictive covenants unforceable nationwide. Good job, Hattie. At that time, that victory felt monumentous. It meant maybe the system could be used to help black people live wherever they want. Hattie McDaniel was chairman of the Negro Division of the Hollywood Victory Committee, providing entertainment for black soldiers stationed at military bases. You see, during World War II, the military was segregated, which meant the entertainment committees had to be as well. McDaniel and White's feud continued when White stood on stage with Hollywood newcomer Lena Horne. She was conventionally beautiful, cultured, black but very light-skinned, and he believed she was the ideal modern black film star. At the 1942 NAAC meeting in Los Angeles, he called out McDaniel in front of 10,000 delegates, including McDaniel herself. He explained that he had been negotiating directly with the studios to change the roles available to black actors in Hollywood. And Hattie was the only actor that White called out. McDaniel believed that it was her and her other fellow black SAG actors who should be negotiating with the studio executives, not White. She accused him of treating her with the tone and manner that a Southern colonel would use on his favorite slave. She said, I have no quarrel with the NAACP or black fans who object to the roles that some of us play, but I naturally resent being completely ignored at the convention. I have struggled for 11 years to open up opportunities for our group in the industry and have tried to reflect credit upon my race in exemplary conduct both on and off screen. He did little to smooth over the situation. And things came to a head in January 1946 when White held a summit for black actors, including Lena Horne and Sam McDaniel, which Hattie did not attend. I cannot accept your invitation to break bread with Mr. Walter White, she wrote in response to the invitation, for he has openly insulted my intelligence. God has endowed me with other talents which Walter White and no other person know nothing of, and they are not menial, as he has said. 
Hattie defended her life's work. How can one in your profession not know that millions of blacks in this country are employed in domestic roles? She asked a reporter in 1949, Surely you don't think the roles I play are obsolete? Hattie's best friend Ruby Goodwin recalled her bitter years of loneliness and disillusionment when Hattie thought her race did not appreciate her artistry. She appeared in several Warner Brothers movies and her last gig was in 1949 for CBS, The Beulah Show. She played a cheerful, problem-solving maid for a white family. It started on radio and then moved to television, but it only lasted a couple years. The show was soon canceled. McDaniel was conflicted, not only professionally, but personally as well. After four failed marriages, a false pregnancy at the age of 51, and then a diagnosis of diabetes and then breast cancer. When the complications became more than she could bear, she was moved into the motion picture country home. She was the first black performer to take residence at this so-called hospice of Hollywood. Hattie McDaniel soon slipped into a coma and died on October 26, 1952, at the age of 57. Hattie McDaniels willed one dollar to one of her four ex-husbands, which I find hilarious. The actress faced racism even in death, for she had requested to be buried at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery in white, with white gardenias in her hair, and a white gardenia blanket covering her, and her head resting on a pillow of red roses. But the Hollywood Cemetery refused to bury a black person. So, in October of 1952, Hattie McDaniel was buried at the Angeles Rosedale Cemetery. 3,000 people attended her funeral, and after the service, 125 limousines formed a procession. When a new owner took over in 1999, the Hollywood Forever Cemetery built a monument dedicated to Hattie McDaniel. They made an offer to her family to have her reinterred at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery. But the family refused. They didn't want her remains disturbed. She has two stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, one for her work on radio and one for her work in film. In recent years, Gone with the Wind has faced a backlash because of its racism. When adjusted for inflation, it is still the highest grossing film ever. For McDaniel, life was a tightrope walk of trying to satisfy herself her prejudiced bosses, and the representation-starved black community. Attempting to be all things to all people, her artistic ambition was often blocked by racism and sexism, yet McDaniel looked for challenges. She said, when you cease to want, you cease to live. Now this all leads me to wonder, Queens of the Minds was created and produced by me, Andrea Anderson. You can support Queens of the Minds on Patreon or purchasing the book Queens of the Minds. Paperback, hardback, and Kindle versions are available on Amazon. This season's theme song is by This Lonesome Paradise. 
You can find their music anywhere, but you should support the band by buying their music and merch at thislonesomeparadise.bandcamp.com. <laughs>